In April 1963, the Beatles were on the cusp of becoming the biggest pop phenomenon in Britain. They had had a number one single and released their debut album two weeks earlier. But on the fourth of that month, they kept an unusual commitment to play a private concert at a private boys' boarding school, Stowe, in Buckinghamshire. What's remarkable is that this concert was recorded by one of the pupils, a 15-year-old who kept the tape for all these years. I didn't know that when I first arranged to visit the school to reflect on the anniversary. Live recordings of the Beatles in these early years of their fame are particularly rare. What you're about to hear is partly a modern reflection on what the event revealed about Britain culturally in 1963 and partly an experience of time travel as we take you back to that moment 60 years ago. Welcome to this week's When They Was Fab. We weren't going to do this until the new single came out, but well, this is too good to let go. I'm Ed Chen. I'm John Stone. I'm Lonnie Pena. And I'm Martin Quibell. We've got the Gab Four together. We all here. We could steal titles from all of the other podcasts. We could be the Fab Four free for all, or we could be everything <laughs> Fab Four, but <laughs> I'll let you decide. <laughs> we promise we won't do this too often, but Here we are, and we're going to talk. Everyone sounds so close, but yet so far away. (laughs) And what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about Ringo Starr has a new single. We're going to spend the next hour talking about Ringo's new single. (laughs) Rewind forward. It's worth talking about. (laughs) I, I actually really like it. What's your name? Where are you going to? Everywhere 
has turned the auto-tune up a couple notches, even from where it was <laughs> on his last couple EPs. It's a lot smoother. It's not as obvious. I think it's more yeah. obvious. Is it? I don't know. I think I it's like pretty the, smooth. Okay. But I like the song. <laughs> it is a very good song. I like it because it's a nice, moderate beat. It has a good sound to it, a good top 10 sound, unfortunately, you know. Mm. There's no more top 10 radio. <laughs> Who wrote it? Ringo's producer and co-writer. And he's been working with Ringo since 2003, Bruce Sugarwell. <laughs> it starts off kind of like a, an 80s new wave thing, actually. I think. Yeah, it does. Although it's got a touch of that 60s feel to it, I yeah, think. I wrote down Cindy Lauper intro. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. See? <laughs> Showing his true colours, you see. talking about you and those jokes here he is here's martin stealing from lonnie's agenda here doing it time after time ah. <laughs> ah. oh well john just but, wants uh, to have fun it's contagious anyway yeah i i really like the single i think it's probably amongst my favorites of the ones he's done of late everything else has been good this is just a little bit better Although the autotune does drive the grade down ever so much for me. Well, I like the fact that it's not a cliche, too much of a cliche. As far as the music is relative to some of the other songs, you know, a Beatle-ish type of song, it's not. The lyrics are clever. They are. There's some of that peace and love thing in it, but it's not completely buried in that like Ringo usually kind of goes. My one complaint (laughs) about the single is that the song is called rewind forward the way the melody works the emphasis on the syllables he ends up kind of singing rewind for word yeah i see what you mean and the word sounds almost just like love (laughs) it almost kind of goes rewind for love not quite but almost the first time i heard it that i i made that mistake a couple times It's not natural. It doesn't come off natural way of speaking to me. So that was uh, that niggles me a bit. Got anything else, Martin? Well, number one, I've just taken note of what you thought it sounded like you were saying, and I'm going to write a song now called Rewind for Love. <laughs> well, well, there you go. Well, that's how the process and- works. <laughs> And, the, and the, you know, it's fa love, F U H. But not fa you. <laughs> no, fa love. It's, it's for could everyone. He, could he spell it the same way, though? F U H, fa love. <laughs>
All right, so we also got some more news about the EP that's coming out. We're getting a new Paul McCartney song. Four songs on the EP are Shadows on the Wall, Feeling the Sunlight, Rewind Forward, and Miss Jean. Feeling the Sunlight is the Paul McCartney song. When is this release? On the Ringo Starr official store, online store, it's announced that his fourth EP, Rewind Forward, is going to be coming on October 13th. In the stores before Christmas. Mm. (laughs) Well, they haven't given us any more information about what's going on with Red and Blue. Martin is going to do a prophecy. The Beatles in October, a George Harrison set in November, and Paul McCartney will release at last another archive set ready for everybody to go bankrupt in December. Well, that would make most of us pretty happy. (laughs) <laughs> but I don't think that's going to happen, but let's keep our fingers crossed there, Marv. There we go. Well, everybody has a bunch of spare cash laying around at Christmas time. <laughs> then it's like, I'm just spending it all on Beetle product. <laughs> well, that's the way it's been the last couple of years. <laughs> so I see a lot of convergence here. And, but we'll have to wait and see, right? And no word on Rubber Soul. Well, Rubber Soul is going to be next year at the earliest. Next year. Okay. And, you know, again, there's no official word on the red and blue at all, right? At no. all. So that could not happen this That's year <laughs> for all practical purposes. I, I really doubt that. They're, they're going to find a way to get now and then out. They've already announced now and then. And now and then they're not going to do what I suggested and come up with an EP with now and then and free as a bird and real love. That's not happening. That's not going to happen. I think it should be now and then and leave my kitten alone. <laughs> if you've got troubles. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay. The other songs uh, on the EP, Shadows on the Wall, written by Joe Williams. Paul has written a song called Feeling the Sunlight, which they recorded in the UK. So I would guess that Paul is actually on the song. Okay. And then Miss Jean, which includes Benmont Tench and Mike Campbell from the Heartbreakers. Cool. Oh, very nice. She's a nice rocker. That is Joe Walsh who's playing the solo in Rewind Forward. He is taking the place of whatever guitar player Ringo may have around. I would guess that Ringo is not in the mood to call up Eric Clapton these days. Uh, you get a better deal with brother-in-law. <laughs> this <Right>? is true. <laughs> this is true. Yep. The other thing we got from Ringo, there is a new video for Nils Lofgren's Ain't the Truth Enough, which was released earlier this year, back in May, and it is also out now. It's, it's, a, it's a nice sort of political anthem. We see Ringo in the video. He's coming from his home studio. Surprise, surprise. Is he playing? He played on the song and he's playing in the video. 
He does a little bit of funny business uh, in between there. He, he's kind of doing the cartoon Ringo kind of thing. Okay. No, I haven't seen that yet. It's on YouTube, right? It's on YouTube. Okay. Have, have a look. It's a slightly country tinge song. It's very much a Nils Lofgren type of song, but Ringo is drumming very well on it. Nice. Other than that, Ringo is getting ready to go back on tour. And as we learn, Paul McCartney is getting ready to go back on tour through the winter of 2023. He's hitting Brazil. Yeah, it's Australia and then Mexico and then Brazil and various other places in South and Central America. Sao Paulo. It's summer down there. What's the better he'll do back in Brazil while he's there? I'm betting he'll do it in soundcheck, but in the show, no way. We'll have to see. (laughs) Ichiban, Ichiban. (laughs) The Australian tickets are sold out. By the time you're hearing this, I would be willing to bet the Mexico City tickets will be sold out. They go on sale on the 2nd of September. Lonnie's considering it. I am. Very much so. The pre-sale started today, so if you didn't get them today, uh, you need to keep an eye out on that. Well, maybe I'm not going. (laughs) (laughs) I logged in just to see if there were tickets, and and there were no tickets as of about 2.30. And supposedly the tickets went on sale at 2 p.m. Central Time. Okay. We'll see. The sale to the general public starts the 2nd of September. I learned last time when he played, is just wait till the dust settles. (laughs) Get a better deal. (laughs) I will be in touch. All right. The real reason we've gotten everybody together is there's a little bit of magic that came out in this past week. It's a beautiful spring day and I'm standing outside Stowe School in Buckinghamshire. There's the ornamental lake behind me. There is students in their lunch hour enjoying the grounds and I'm walking up this grand staircase to this fantastic south entrance to what was once a stately home to meet John Bloomfield who was a student here in the spring of 1963 and there's a photograph of you standing right where you are right now by the pillars to this school. Hello. Hello John. Yes hello nice to meet you. Lovely to meet you. So how old were you in um, April 1963? I was 15. And we're here to talk about a particular event, a particular concert that, would it be fair to say it changed your life? Yes, absolutely. Uh, No one knew who the Beatles were at this school, but they turned up here and played an incredible concert. And that was the beginning of the 60s, as far as we were concerned. It was fabulous. The bootleg came out this week. We've known about this tape since April, when it was reported about from the BBC. This was... Basically a buried treasure, right? A find that this person who had the tape forgot they had it or how was it discovered? I don't think he forgot he had it. I think it's more he just either didn't know or didn't care how much it was worth. But it was in his possession for the last 60 years. or For the last 60 years, yep. John Bloomfield quietly recorded it and kept the tape for 60 years till he decided to reveal it. There's a part at the end of the tape uh the bird (laughs) record pops up most of money got taped over we don't know if it is from bloomfeld who was the one who did the recording or if he loaned the tape to somebody or when i heard that i was like well this was a tape he didn't really value at the time it's like oh i have a tape with the beatles he taped over it (laughs) Yeah, if that's what happened. I, and I've mistakenly have done that, you know, myself. Right. Like, like I'm taping over and say, oh, Chucks, this is the wrong cassette <laughs> or whatever tape. Right. <laughs> well, well, people used to put that little piece of tape over the hole on even pre-recorded cassettes and 
tape over them just because. Tapes were expensive back in those days. Yeah, yeah, and this is a real tape. There's no way to protect the real tape, the real to real. The story, as we all know, one of the sons of the Moores family actually went to Stowe. He had come out of Liverpool. The Moores family being the one who bought Stu Sutcliffe's painting and allowed Stu to join the Beatles. Oh, interesting. An odd coincidence. So, I mean, you know, we're talking about a well-off family, and apparently Stowe School was not for kids who didn't have access to money. So it's a private boarding school? It's or? a private, it's a boys' school boarding. 30 or 40 miles outside of London. Okay. So, yeah, boarding schools, typically you have to have some cash, you know, for but, the most I mean, part. Do we know if it still exists? The Stowe School does still exist. Ah. Uh, if you listen to the BBC show, the first time we heard any of this tape, they actually went into the auditorium. And so the, oh, the, BB, okay. the BBC version of this, which was just oh maybe about a minute or two, they played over the Stowe School speakers in that auditorium. Right. Nice. Wow. And this was like March. There's a, a long story about... Mark Lewison was in New York for the Fest for Beatles fans, and apparently he was phoned up by his friend over at the BBC. And it's like, you're not going to believe what I've just found. <laughs> I can't imagine what Mark thought at the time. <laughs> right. It's a gold mine. <laughs> This becomes the earliest known recording of the Beatles live in the UK uh, in anything more than about three minutes. I mean, there's a couple of tracks recorded in the cavern in 62, but this is a show. This is a f the first full show that we have of them in the UK. This was their ballroom act. They, they, did, they played theatres for about 20, where they would do maximum 25 minutes if they were top of the bill twice a night. That was a theatre setup, And they would do ballroom dates in between theater dates and ballroom shows were typically an hour usually two half hours and they would punch it to the audience and they can go into anything but they like to have a strong beginning always it was quite a well honed set by this time because i had played so much so yes it's, it's a good kind of knockout punch to begin with by going straight i saw her standing there straight into too much monkey business yeah so roughly a month later in Late April, you know, we were all wondering, what's he going to do with this tape? Is he going to sell it to somebody and we're never, ever going to get to hear any of it? He actually went and donated it to the British Library. And so it was on public display, obviously. Yeah, <laughs> you could go into the British Library. As long as you had a library card for the British Library, you could go and they would give you some headphones and you could call up the digital version of this That's show. That's crazy. <laughs> Well, so much for keeping it a secret. <laughs> or making some big amount of money off of it to give it away, I, I guess. That's why he taped over and put the bird on it. <laughs> it's like, it's not that big a deal to him. You know, we were all wondering, when are we going to get to hear it? When are we going to hear it? Well, Martin's in England. He could have gone to the library and heard it <laughs> a month or two ago. I could. I could. But he did not. And we would have had our copies then. <laughs> right. You, you still should go, Martin, because this is clearly a second generation copy. We still don't know how exactly it got out of the British Library. <laughs> There's ways. But it sounds like you'd go and you hear a first generation of crappy recording. Well, you know, if you listen to the bits that they played on the BBC, there is a bit more bass and a bit more drums, particularly on like 
Love Me Do and saw her standing there, you can hear that a bit more clearly. And the other thing is in this bootleg version, there is clearly some audible white noise coming out of either the right or the left speaker, alternatively. Yeah, all of which can be adjusted with AI. But it still can't be eliminated. What we don't have is we don't have the bass and the drums, which is at least nominally better in the original recording. Yeah. Paging Peter Jackson and Mal to go over there and sort this out. Hopefully they will give the Beatles access to the original tape if they do that. They're not going to make them do it off the bootleg. Although... <laughs> the Beatles always have a weird relationship with the bootleggers. Some of the stuff on Anthology and even some of the stuff in these deluxe edition box sets is clearly derived from tapes from the bootleggers. Yeah, they've taken it and attempted to do their EQ and whatnot. But, you know, like the Star Club, they've done nothing with that. It's owned by Apple now, right? Yeah, they own that. The best version of the Star Club is definitely the one that has come out on the internet from Lord Reith is the uh, yeah. name that the fellow goes by. Right. He's taken the copy of the first generation tape and has de-echoed it. And it actually sounds pretty good. It sounds slightly better than what we have here. Oh, yeah. Very well. I mean, yes. You say crappy sound. This is not terrible sound. It's, it, it is very listenable for the most part. Oh, again, I think with the technology that we have now and, and probably future technology with AI, it can be cleaned up, but I also think it could be improved on. There's a lot of potential here. I mean, the fact that we have it, no matter what quality it is. Right. It's a raw data that can be upgraded. The, the fidelity is low, um, but I think in today's technology, a lot can be done with it to make it much more listenable. We'll leave it to the next generation of Beatle forensics. <laughs> The very fact that it exists at all is extraordinary. And we get to hear them play all sorts of songs, which um, we have no other live recording of. And for you guitar players out there, the one thing you do get really loud and clear throughout this whole tape is George's guitar. There's some great guitar playing in there. Yeah. I think he's kind of turned up because he probably is stuffed up and therefore cranked his guitar a little louder. <laughs> Yeah, probably couldn't hear himself. Yeah. That could be a reason, yes. Some of the performance, they don't half go quickly. We're going to go through the whole tape here in a minute. The other thing that Lonnie wanted to bring up was the actual tape recorder that Bloomfeld had to make this recording with. I knew the Roxborough Hall very well. I'd done a lot of work in it. I'd installed a lighting system here, and I felt it was my prerogative to take my open reel tape recorder, five-inch open reel tape recorder, and put it down there. Yeah, it's a nifty little recorder. What's it called? A Butoba or Butoba? B-U-T-O-B-A. The Butoba MT5 was a battery-operated tape recorder that was marketed by the Butoba Company of Germany. Uh, this model was introduced in 1960 and was the successor of a model that was virtually identical with a brown casing which was introduced in 1959. And those two machines together could be said to uh, be really the first available home recording tape recorders 
for battery operation. Until then, home tape recorders had been uh, solely um, mains operated, with battery operated recorders being available for professional use, uh, but at a corresponding price tag and, and not intended for, for the average home user. Weighs about 12 pounds. It's a reel-to-reel, 5-inch reel-to-reel, which is about 600 feet. It has two speeds, one at 1 and 7 8 IPS. You can record up to two hours at the 1 and 7 8 IPS. And then three and three quarter speed, which is a faster speed, you can record up to one hour. Again, it uses four D cell batteries. So nice. is it something you'd hold in your lap or have I, to set I, it up? I would think it would be uh, on a table, but I guess you could hold it on your lap. It, it's 12 pounds. Right. It's not overly heavy. It's, you know, a small pet probably weighs about eight, 10 pounds. And they were strong strapping boys. Yes, they were. If you look at some of the photos from the day. Now, I noticed there was microphones obviously on the stage for yes. them, but... What's this? Is this another yeah. microphone Yeah, that, that's another microphone that I put there in an attempt to actually make a recording of this show, which I did. He probably had the recorder with him on the floor. One thing to note is that those batteries did start to run down a little bit because the speed is not quite dead on for the entire show and there is now a speed corrected version out there. <laughs> yeah. that's the first thing that someone has done is they've gone and messed with the tuning to determine exactly what the speed should be it's off by about two and a half percent at the beginning and by the end it's off by you know three or four percent so they've adjusted the tape throughout the whole tape so it is playing it back at the correct speed and we know the running time is just about an hour yeah. I guess he recorded it at three and three quarter IPS. The tape ran out at the end of the second version of Solar Standing there. What we actually have is a recreation because it ended like right around George's solo. So because they started to end the show proper with Solar Standing there. They've gone and <laughs> cut and pasted the end of the f first version of Solar Standing there onto the second one. It's like baby Apple people have gotten a hold of it. It's like, let's yeah. cut it up now. We have the stuff. Let's, here's the original, and now we're going to stick in the live version from the Hollywood Bowl right here. You know, you know it, it's sort of like top and tailed a bit like, you know, Sergeant Pepper's album. All the need is a day in the life <laughs> song to finish it with afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I was going to say that slowest speed, one and three quarters, that what it was. That's really only good for speaking. Uh, recording speeches or something like that. Music sounds terrible. He had to had use the faster speed. Yeah. I looked on eBay and there's not one available, but you can find the owner manual. The original owner's manual is available. Cool. Mm. And so yeah. this is not quite the complete show, like I say. It, it ran out during their second version of Star standing there. We don't know exactly, but it is believed that the encore consisted of Sweet Little Sixteen and then Long Tall Sally. So he almost recorded the whole show. <laughs> that explains a lot. And, you know, your, your explanation that at the speed that he was recording at, he could only get an hour on yeah. the tape. And there's the hour. It's a little more than an hour because, again, the speed wasn't quite correct on yeah. the machine. It, it reminds me of back in the day when I used to take a tape recorder to rehearsals for my band. 
and uh, the tape used to run out part way through uh, a song we were working on, and and then you'd have to mess about trying to change the tape <laughs> over to you know, and then and then try and remember what you'd all done on that really great rehearsal version of this song. <laughs> As you know, the story from previous episodes. I took a cassette recorder in when I saw McCartney in '76. McCartney and Wings, and uh, I actually practice changing the cassette over. Where were you? In the summit? I was at the summit. I was up front. I was real close. I was in front of Linda, stage right. I was right in front of Paul (laughs) on the floor. Yeah, you were right there. I was like one person back from being right there, you know. So what I remember (laughs) is the big crush. Oh, yeah. There was a surge that pushed forward. Yeah. And I'm not a tall man. And I was actually lifted from the floor by this <laughs> group of people. And I thought, oh, my God, I could die here. <laughs> yeah. But I remember it's comical because I would practice changing the tape before I went to the concert at home in a closet, dark. <laughs> That's great. So I can get the feel for it because I had to change the cassette. You know, there was two cassettes and yep. change them twice, side one to side two. Without looking at it. <laughs> so well, well, we have to say thank you for your effort because <laughs> there is another copy out nowadays of that Summit show, which is in slightly better sound quality, but it's missing a couple songs. Oh, but there you go. Lonnie's version is the only complete version of the McCartney and yeah, Houston except for that, show. Except for that six seconds where I flipped over the cassette. Do you remember what song it was? I don't. <laughs> I was busy changing tapes. Yeah. <laughs> You might need three cassette tapes now. Oh, definitely. Or I get my uh, a digital player. Seamless. The other thing about that recorder, that was not a cheap machine. Those Grundigs, which we always hear Paul talk about, those were about 35 pounds at the time, which was still roughly $1,000 in today's money. Yeah. Yeah. This kid was, he was given one for Christmas. Do we know his birthday? It's probably a birthday gift. Christmas is probably likely if, you know, he got it and then he got a chance to play with it a little bit. You know, this is April the 4th. Yeah. So, you know, he would be comfortable enough with it that he could try and record with it. But the point is, this was actually a semi-pro piece of audio gear. He had the money. The cost of this recorder was over three times what the Grundig was. So if the Grundig was roughly a grand, we're talking about, $3,000 in current money. Whoa. There's inflation for you, folks. <laughs> <laughs> There's no mention of a microphone. Well, he did have one. So. Well, yeah. I wonder what he used. Probably one of those flat microphones, maybe. Well, he had his, like a ceramic microphone, more uh, or less the equivalent of what we might have had when we had those little boxy rectangular tape machines. Yeah. Pre-Walkman. If he could afford a $3,000 recorder... <laughs> That he didn't have to go to Radio Shack for his bikes, for sure. <laughs> you would think so. All right, so let's move on into the tape. As mentioned, there is a Japanese boot, which would seem to be the first generation, and there is also now a copy from the Fab Records folks. I would say don't buy the Fab one. This is the opposite of my usual recommendation. If you're going to buy it, buy the... Japanese one because they're the ones who are in touch with whoever made this tape. The fab folks are just, well, making a dollar, as Ringo likes to say. Yeah, it's probably a third generation copy. Yeah, it's probably a digital copy off of the Japanese CDs. So what you get in the box, I've ordered one. I haven't received it yet, but I have ordered one. You get two CDs, you get one 
which is just a direct transcript of the raw tape and they've done a little bit of cleaning up with it they call it a stereo or they call it an ai so they've done a little bit of cleaning up with it mostly what they've done on the stereo or ai version is not really stereo is there's a lot of distortion that comes in particularly when the volume gets loud and they've done a pretty good job of cleaning all that up the tape begins with a little warm-up a little warm-up which sounds surprisingly like what we're going to get on sergeant pepper Four years later, there's a little bit of classical music come in. You can hear the Beatles warming up, and you can hear the boys in the auditorium just sort of milling about, making the sounds one does before a show. You can just close your eyes and just picture and imagine yourself there. Why are they playing this vaguely classical music before the Beatles come on? Well, it is a boarding school. Right. Upper classes. Standard pre-show music. Pre-show music, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, what are they going to play? Like Cliff yeah. Richard or they're just playing, as you said, typical opening music. Yeah. Great it's- speeches from Winston Churchill. <laughs> This was 1963. About 52 seconds in, you can hear the crowd raise a bit of a ruckus. Not too much, but they're very definitely welcoming the band to the stage. And they walk. Do they get any clapping? There, there is some recognition from the crowd that they're actually coming onto the stage. Mostly it's boys shouting out and, hey, yeah, they're actually here. It's funny because if this was a regular show and you have girls there... <laughs> The frequency of the screaming would be a lot higher. You do hear some cheering, but it's almost mid-range because it's the guys cheering. Yeah, later <laughs> we do actually hear a little bit from the girls. Uh, as we learned when they were discussing the show on the BBC, there were some girls from the girls' school who did manage to come across and get into the auditorium and were hanging out in the back of the room. Right. And it's early April of 1963 so they've really only had please please me as a hit record right and even though they play it for me to you was still a week or so from coming out the album was no more than a week old at this point in the stores right so you know they come out in their talk they talk about their please please me album but you know i don't want to give anything away necessarily but when they do play please please me the place erupts. They're all singing along. They're doing that whole, come on, come on. You know, the audience is way into it. The Beatles very clearly win these boys over pretty quickly. Such early stages of their fame. It's not surprising that they're not getting any screams. It's surprising that they do. They have one record, basically, and an album. I'm not sure what their radio frequency was at that point were they doing a lot of shows at that point like saturday club and all haven't we been going through the bbc tapes for the last six months here john yes <laughs> i'm just giving you a hard time they were still doing like side by side and stuff and, and in fact one of the really interesting things about this show is in the morning before they went down to the school they actually recorded a side by side 
Right. So, you know, we, we actually have 27 songs that the Beatles performed on this day available to us. <laughs> That's kind of nuts. Right. Wow. And it also becomes known that the band had intended to play two shows. The fact that they were going to have to play a full hour was kind of a surprise to them. So they had to completely restructure. Paul kind of says, well, well, we don't have any more numbers. And then it's like, oh, well, we can do this. Right. The morning show is the one where they played I'll Be On My Way. That's why we remember that episode of Side by Side. Right. Side by to a grasshopper's the old phrase. We are knee-deep in the four Beatles once again this afternoon, side by side, as usual, with the Carl Denver Trio. We've all had our troubles and parted. We'll be the same as we started. We've traveled along, singing a song this side by side, oh I just found overall that the reaction of the audience was really interesting because John makes a lot of jokes. There's clearly a back and forth between the band and the audience. And this is not the cavern. You know, they're not playing in front of an audience that knew them well. And so that kind of easy relationship with the audience is real interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, a full lunchtime show is one of the things that I would just dearly love to have. This is probably the closest we're going to get. Right. Well, John is warming up. He throws off a little joke. Hello, hello, who's your lady friend? Martin, I believe that was an old British standard, so we don't understand it. But John and certainly the boys understood that John was making a joke there. I'm not sure what they're on about either. It went over my head, surprisingly. This is a prime example of Cockney Musical, and it's called Hello, Hello, Who's Your Lady Friend? your time Marv. it was it was before my time yes they weren't doing that in boarding school when i went <laughs> and that was the effect of the beatles <laughs> they, they still had the cane though ah uh, hence the laid-back response from the audience i think 
So as mentioned, they start off with Saur standing there, or a really pretty nice version of Saur standing there. Don't know how to clap though. <laughs> They're clapping on the on beat, you know. Right. Okay. Oh, I see. Yeah. You know, one, two, three. Ringo is filling in, in, in between their claps. It's like <laughs> that's not quite right. But it was clearly uh, evident that they were enjoying themselves. The uh, audience, they had to be familiar with the songs. You know, they're in boarding school. You know, records were bought to them. <laughs> I'm sure gifts and whatnot. So many of them probably had the. Please, please me album already. You said it was a week before. Yeah, it, it had had come out the week before. So I mean, yeah. even if they'd had it, they clearly had gotten it and liked it. And I mean, some of them, again, Moore's included, were from Liverpool and had certainly had some familiarity with them from their days in Liverpool. Yeah, well, the fact that they were there, right? Because it was a booking that was requested by a student. Right. One of the boys here was from Liverpool and he organised the concert and we got uh, a bill for £100 that we had to pay, which doesn't sound very much nowadays, but I think you could multiply that by 10 at least. About yes. £10,000. Yes. Well, we've got the letter, haven't we? We, we um, have. We, we, we've got the, the first letter, yeah. which is um, a reply to Dave Moores, and, and Dave, Dave Moores comes from the, the, the family in Liverpool. The, the John the, Moores family. John Moores, Littlewoods, Little so they're a well-established family, and, and my guess is that Brian Epstein knew exactly who was writing to him. Mm. So the letter is, is, is addressed to Dave Moores, 30th of January 1963, and he says, many thanks for your letter. It would be a great pleasure for the boys to appear at Stowe, but I must advise you that they are heavily booked, and I cannot make much allowance with regard to their fee. However, I, I am prepared to arrange a midweek appearance for a fee of £100. Yours sincerely, Brian Epstein. 1963 was an incredibly active year for the Beatles. They were busy all the time. And of course, that's when the rocket really took off. The Beatles' fee was going up all the time, but at the time when this was negotiated, which I think was February of 63, uh, £100 was just under their, their going rate. It was a good fee. It was, it was a fee that put off a lot of people from booking them because it meant you had to be sure to bring in a good crowd through the, through, through the door, otherwise you wouldn't make your money back. It was that kind of a fee. So £100 wasn't cheap, but on the other hand, it, it wasn't quite the, the top dollar that they could have charged. But I think there was an appeal in this uh, to Brian and to, and to the Beatles as well. I think there was a novelty value that, yeah, if we ask for £100 and you pay it, we'll, we will come and play. And um, so they, they, he wasn't selling them cheap, Brian. But on the other hand, I think there was the, I think his interest was, was piqued by this unusual approach. Dave had been to see them at the Cavern Club. He had told the Stoics, there's this fantastic band from Liverpool. It yeah. was Moore's of the Moore's family, the son, who 
went on to own the Liverpool football team. Oh, okay. The whole history of his correspondence with Brian exists and can be found on the internet. Brian was like, well, okay, we can do this, but we can't give you that much of a discount. And it's like, oh, don't worry about it. I can cover the cash. (laughs) And they did, right? (laughs) Well, and he ended up making... Actually, a boatload of money off this show. They charged the students, obviously, to they, get in. Yeah. It got all the way to getting ready to sign the contract. Then Brian was like, uh, you're not of age. So w- what I like about this one is that it really shows you that this is the, the age of assumption whatsoever that uh, anyone here has heard of the Beatles. So uh, there are four Beatles. And of course, there was a little bit of confusion over who the drummer was not not long before this. So Ringo was still quite new to the the band. The other letter, which is, um, again, so redolent of uh, how improvised this was. And I think uh, Brian Epstein, by this stage, is beginning to worry about the legality of the the contract with Dave Moores because I think he's realised that Dave is 17. (laughs) And uh, so the next letter is the 26th of February. The contract has been signed. However, this is getting a slightly bit more formal. I regret that it's necessary for me to request that the contract be endorsed by a representative of Stowe School um, itself over 21 years of age, as otherwise the contract is not, strictly speaking, legal. So I think by this stage, Brian has has worked out that Stowe is a a school Mm. and that Dave Moores is a a schoolboy and that £100 was quite a lot of money. Mm. And even though the concert tickets were selling for five shillings, and I think actually Dave made £150 out of the concert, so he was up on the deal, Brian wanted this nailed down. The Stowe performance for me has always been quite magical. Oh, okay. So... Almost signed it with a minor. <laughs> As I say, I'm sure he's not the only one from Liverpool. So there there were a lot of people who knew at least of the Beatles and had probably seen them once or twice at the Cavern. I mean, remember, the Cavern was not a bar. The Cavern was a coffee bar. Yeah. And the album was very popular, even if it was released a week earlier, because it was their first number one. For right. Sure. So it was very popular. It was just astounding that they actually played the school. They had a record release and still playing a school. They were doing their own shows when they could in between. They had done the Helen Shapiro tour. They were on the Chris Montez and Tommy Rowe tour and then on the Roy Orbison tour. Yeah, so they were, so they were playing know. venues. They were not playing colleges and universities or boarding schools. <laughs> the fact that they were there, it's amazing. And the fact that it was recorded was even more amazing. So, okay, Sawyer Standing There goes right into Too Much Monkey Business. A great version. Even though you can't really hear the power of John's vocals, you can feel them. Yeah, the guitars and everything are just really crisp and clean. You know, again, the drums are, it's unfortunate they're not, I was going to say mixed up because it was a live recording. It's really, really a a good, straightforward, heavy beat song. I like it better than any of the BBC versions of this song. (laughs) 
bad, good looking, trying to get me who can be to marry still now. Get a home out of a Too much monkey business. Too much monkey business. Too much monkey business for me to imbibe again. I'd love a cleaned up version of this so we could hear everything yeah. in its place and better sounding. Definitely, it would be great. That is what the Beatles were at the time. It's like, okay, we're going to go right from Star standing there into another just tremendous rocker. By sheer coincidence this week, as I was listening to this, I happened to hear Chuck Berry's version of Too Much Monkey Business. And the difference is so pronounced that for those who hadn't heard the Beatles, this might have been a familiar song, but it wasn't being done that way. Working in the filling station, too many tasks, wipe the windows, check the tires, check the oil, a dollar gas. Ha! Too much monkey business, too much monkey business. I don't want your botheration, get away, leave me. Just kind of brought to me the impact that they had at that time. Definitely. A, they were a tight band. Very tight. At Hamburg, really paid off. Oh, yeah. They're so much more professional here. I mean, granted, it wasn't a holiday at the end of the year when they didn't really want to be there playing. They were in their top form, whereas you can't really say the same in Hamburg. They did well, but they were tired of that scene by that point. Yeah. See, I think we're getting, you know, songs like this, though. I mean, because you were saying that they were almost forced into doing a double length set, essentially, rather than two sets. I think that that's why you've got all these really powerful performances and these songs in there, because otherwise you very likely might get the same set twice otherwise. Even going back to the Hamburg days, that was what they said about Roy Storm and the Hurricanes. It's like, oh, they'll come on and do the same set three or four times. We don't want to repeat ourselves in one night, which makes Paul's comment later about, oh, we hadn't planned on doing more than two half-hour sets, so we're almost out of songs. All right, so that then goes into uh, the introduction where they tell us that George has lost his voice. Poor George. He's a little ill. He was ill when they came to America, was he not? He was. <laughs> the following well, year? They all got ill at various times during yeah. that year, but given the winter and given Beatlemania, is it any surprise? Yeah. Well, this is yeah. April, and John was sick when they recorded in March. And so my theory is that John gave his cold to George. So that would then explain this introduction. (laughs) You know, Paul is off telling them that, well, we want to apologize. You know, George can't sing. And John's like, hooray! (laughs) (laughs) We get to sing more. (laughs) Now it all makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) So Paul then continues, and, and then they go into the single. They go into Love Me Do. Then they have to tell you that John is on mouth organ. Yeah. A nice version of Love Me Do. Very nice. Different arrangement slightly, though, for the change. 
have the weird thing. We've kind of gone back and forth on this several times. Did Pete actually come up with a skip beat, or was this something that he just messed up on when they played it for the first time in the studio? Love me Ringo's doing it here. He is. Ringo is doing it, but it's more of an even beat. For sure. It's, it's not It's not the have a Nagila thing. It is. Right. It's also kind of following <laughs> the chugging thing that George is doing right. on the guitar. Right. So it could have been something they did, and Martin was like, no, no, no. <laughs> no, you got to keep that single straight, you know. So maybe it was that. Yeah, it's uh, definitely more syncopated than what they've done beforehand. Yeah, but you can also notice that when they go into that, the audience reacts. I mean, they're kind of cheering along there. They get it even though it's not part of the single. Right, exactly. Live version, that's what it is. (laughs) And George gets a nice little outro on the guitar that I don't think we've heard anywhere else. It's real smooth. It's a great version in a lot of ways. All right, so that is halfway through the Stowe School tape. We we are all in agreement that this is a really tremendous find, and this is quite possibly the best bit of new Beatles that we've had since the Star Club in 1977. Oh, absolutely. Buried treasure. There's a lot more to come. Don't stop now. Got some songs in the next part of this chat where they are really cooking. Ringo! The boys just want Ringo to sing more. Two songs from Ringo just wasn't enough. True, true. All right, so catch us next week when we finish off the Stowe School tape from April the 4th, 1963. Take care, everyone. Be safe, folks. to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. I love the idea that there's a little bit of time travel now for anyone who hears this tape. They will be back in that hall yes. in 1963 with you and a few hundred other boys. Yes, and, and in relative silence. And I think that's one of the key elements about this tape. It may not be 
a brilliantly recorded tape, but the uh, atmosphere in that hall was unique. I mean, I've talked to many of my people who were there, and we all walked out of that hall really astonished. The long and winding road to the British Library. My thanks to John Bloomfield, Jan Winterson, Maggie Boynton and Mark Lewison and as ever to producer Julian May. So you can listen to the Beatles at Stowe concert from tomorrow in person at the British Library's reading rooms in London or at Boston Spa. But you need to register first for a free reader's pass. Information on the British Library website where, while we've been on air, the tape is now listed on the Sound and Moving Image catalogue. Remember, you can only listen to it on a library computer terminal on site, not from home. What's it called? Please, please, man. Ready? Go. This is our latest record. We got C One thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals. 
but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned out nice again.